Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey, gang! Welcome back to Blockhead. Yes, I've returned after an unintentional hiatus of a couple of months. Uh, The result of working on a Kickstarter, which was successful, thanks to you and thanks to all those who supported my endeavor over at Kickstarter. Green screen number one is a successful Kickstarter and will be winging its way to its supporters. Hopefully by the end of this month, uh, according to the printer, I should have the books then. So thank you to all of you who uh, chipped in and uh, helped make this a reality. Uh, and anyway, that's why I've been I've been away. I've been so wrapped up in working on that and some other things that uh, I just hadn't found found the time to get really into editing and and putting together the show again. Uh, there's so much to do for a Kickstarter that I didn't know about. So, but today we've got a terrific show. It's a long one, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with you. But I really want to tell you about this stuff. Uh, Christopher Sprandio is here today. He's Pinko Joe from Instagram. And if you aren't familiar with with his work, boy oh boy, you are missing something. You've got to get on Instagram and check out at Pinko underscore Joe. Check it out. Uh, he he does some terrific, uh, very pointed. Uh, commentary on today's uh, politics and uh, very truthful and straightforward but in a very humorous and uh, for those of us who love comics in a very interesting way vintage comic style uh, wonderful stuff and that style is really fleshed out in full in his terrific terrific graphic novels from ArgleBargleBooks.com it's hard for me to say ArgleBargleBooks.com it's uh, spelled just the way it sounds ArgleBargle A-R uh, Argle A-R-G-L-E-B-A-R-G-L-E ArgleBargle I hope I spelled that right. Anyway, Pinko Joe, just fantastic stuff. Uh, Christopher takes public domain comics and repurposes them, you know, puts them through the ringer, puts them through the the meat grinder, if you will, the process of stripping away color and then redrawing them on top or re-inking them, really, and then recoloring them and rewriting them uh, to create something wholly new that really taps into, I think, something, the the political zeitgeist, and deals with, in this case, they're not quite as timely as the Instagram, although they're timeless, in a sense, because they they take these comics that have, that are suffused with kind of 50s Cold War attitudes, and bring uh, an entirely 21st century progressive attitude to play, in a very satirical and funny way, and I think if if you love this kind of approach to comics, a different approach to comics and cartooning, plus uh, satire with a political bent, I think you're going to love these books. Pinko Joe, Greeny Josephini, both of them are terrific. There's a third one coming out soon. 
that Christopher talks about. He's got another great book from ArgoBargleBooks.com called Fundamental Camarena, which is um, which brings to light the work of a Mexican cartoonist by the name of Julio Camarena, who you may or may not have heard of here in the in the states. I know he's new to me. Uh, who was active in the '60s through the '90s, one of the most popular Mexican cartoonists working during that period. Christopher had collected uh, Camarena's work, uh, picked up the originals, and now has brought them together in a brand new reprinting of uh, a whole slew of, of Camarena's pages of wonderfully inky drawings, which are highly reminiscent of adventure uh, comic strips from, from the 60s or the 70s. And uh, it, it's really all new stuff to me, but it's really terrific, pulpy art, and uh, I think you're going to love it. If you're interested in finding out about about somebody new, somebody new to your understanding of the history of comics, well, this brings to light the work of a master cartoonist from Mexico, Julio Camarena, again from ArgoBargleBooks.com. Comics Making, Teaching the Technology of Comics, is another wonderful little book that's also part history uh, about the, the printing process in comics. So this is all terrific stuff, all coming from Argle Bargle, who also prints and publishes a, a wonderful array of, of art comics, if you will, uh, that, are, that are maybe new to you and something different. And uh, it's kind of cool to bring something new into the mix. And I really, really love these books. And uh, I can't recommend them enough to those of you who are of similar mindset as I am. So uh, this is a long interview. Let's get really right into it. Whatever else I have to say to you, I'll say at the end. So let's just get to the interview with Christopher Sperandio, myself, at Pinko Joe. Pinko Joe and me in conversation. Hey, Christopher Sperandio. Welcome to Blockhead. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Oh, it's great to have you here. I am a big fan of Pinko Joe. You, both the uh, graphic novel and the Instagram account, which updates daily with some of the most hilarious and um, engaging, in inspiring comics uh, every day. It's great stuff, Christopher, and uh, I, I'm so glad I ran across it on Instagram. Well, uh, thank you. You know, it's a product of our times, which is, uh, you know, kind of anger and frustration. <laughs> so. <laughs> and so that yeah. other people find my anger and frustration funny is, uh, is I don't know, that's, uh, that's the biggest right? joke of all. Yeah, I guess I guess it is. No, it's true. Anger is a, and and frustration with the current political situation, climate, whatever, is always a great motivator, <laughs> unfortunately and fortunately, right? I mean, the, the worst of times can be some of the best inspiration and best motivators of all. And um, Yeah, until they start killing or jailing cartoonists. I mean, right. that's the, uh, you never hear about an abstract painter getting put in jail, but uh, <laughs> there are a lot of cartoonists that end up doing prison time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, it is true. And uh, it, it seems to be one of those things that's happening more and more as time goes on. Um, but I do think, right, uh, when we go back to what was the name of the exhibition that um, the Nazis put on back in 36? Um, the Degenerate Art. The Degenerate Art Exhibition, right? And yeah. and uh, it didn't I, I'm not sure they shipped off any uh, any of those painters, but they they might have. Um you know, to uh, I think they chased every uh, every sort of right thinking person out of out, out of Germany. Germany. Yeah, you know, so, and and to our benefit, frankly, the the um, the artists that came to the U.S. brought 
you know, their sort of Bauhaus knowledge and yeah. wisdom to us. I think, uh, you know, it's sad, sad condition to get all that, that uh, great information, but. Exactly. The uh, just as as the Nazis rose uh, in power and fascism rose in power in the 30s, um, there was like an exodus of artists to the United States, and um, and so thus what given birth to the modern art movement in the U.S. in the 40s and the 50s. Right? There wouldn't have been the same without Pierre Mondrian being here in the U.S. or uh, you know a variety of other folks as well. Yeah, Albers. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. It's long, Max Ernst, long right? Didn't Ernst come here? <clears throat> yeah, Ernst. Uh, I don't think he was ever part of the Bauhaus, but he right. definitely uh, was. You know, um, made his way to the in US. exile. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's, I, there's actually I teach at Rice University here in mm-hmm. Houston, and uh, I actually give a lecture to my students on cartoonists who have been jailed or executed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, over the last what 100 years 10 years 50 years what um what kind of time period are we talking about it really not like like uh 60s 70s 80s now okay uh-huh. like uh-huh. uh you know in my lifetime um, it must be a you know scary but riveting lecture i'm sure it's still the case that that working with comics and academia you get a lot of sidelong glances and sneering condescending questions and it's just a helpful reminder that that you know that it's actually a very uh very important medium field of inquiry and that you know cartoonists take it on the chin when the when the knives come out uh, it's their blood that's drawn yeah i mean there's something enormously powerful in both satire and you know combining the word and the image together in a satirical cartoon is among the most powerful media tools we have i mean it's instantaneous it's immediate uh it grabs attention it spreads really easily and quickly in a millisecond a really good cartoonist can take you know somebody uh like trump or or somebody else and turn them into a buffoon and powerful people don't like that Uh, what is it? Uh, Napoleon. Um, he was character, he was, um, caricatured as a, uh, as a, a child throwing a tantrum and that, uh, stuck with him. And that's why people portray him as being small. Uh, Mm. he, he was average height for his time, but, uh, but he's portrayed as this, as this, uh, tantrum throwing adolescent. And uh, and it really it kind of un, it undid him ultimately I think. And and images of uh, you know tyrants and whatnot in comics form have often stuck with them throughout their careers. I mean once once an image sticks to somebody, um, <laughs> right? You know, uh, hard it, to shake. It's hard to shake it. You know, I'm thinking now of. Um, of Tammany Hall and Thomas Nast, right? Um, you know, yeah. Thomas Nast almost single-handedly took down Tammany Hall and uh, through his cartoons, they were so effective and powerful. And uh, absolutely, um, it's one hell of a weapon. But we're we're getting in really deep and serious. And I wanted to, <laughs> you know, how can we not in one sense? But I also wanted to, you know, 
let's talk about Pinko Joe and let's talk about where, where did these liberal socialist cartoons come from? Um, where did where did the inspiration to start working in comics and working in Instagram come from? Because, you know, I think what you've got, the, the meeting of the immediacy of the medium, the social media and the imagery that you're using uh, along with the message, I think it's so powerful. It's like this perfect, you know, uh, perfect mix of the mediums together. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, it's uh, it wasn't. Uh, I would like to say that the work is pro-democratic. It's mm-hmm. anti-fascist. Yeah. But it really is a culmination of a long, long time of thinking about uh, how to make comics, and 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 so. You know, Pinko Joe, I actually started working on it in 2014. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been sort of uh, uh, in development for a while. And it was so, really go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to ask what it, what form it took in 2014. Well, I was working on the book Pinko Joe. It okay. was the, the first volume of what is it? A three volume series. Yeah. Uh, Pinko Joe, Greeny, Josephini, and then the last volume is going to be called uh, Red, White, and You Blew It All to Hell. <laughs> Which okay. Are titles that I, it's a title I came up with four years ago. Oh, my God. Amazing. Well, yeah. four years ago, you know, I mean, what can we say? For, we all know what happened for, well, 2017 is four years ago, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. But still, we all know what we were going through then. And, yeah. uh Sure, absolutely. Um, Seems like a walk in the park. I'm nostalgic for those good old days. (laughs) So the folks who are listening, um, Pinko Joe and and um, Greeny Josephini are both books available from Argle Bargle Books in Canada and available. You can get them at PinkoJoe.com. Com, right uh and um if people want them they are utterly fantastic and um you know for as long as it took to put the first one together i mean it's just great and it's both again you know motivational and at the same time and and it, anger inducing but at the same time it's also funny as hell and uh you know i just think it's incredible stuff so so you started four years ago on this stuff and what was the, the you know the impetus and the idea that you had at the time that got you going uh it, this wasn't your first work in comics no no i've been i've been working i've been making comics um mostly as artworks for museums since the the early 90s i i have an MFA from the University of Illinois in Chicago. I got my BFA at West Virginia University in West Virginia. Um, and I was on this track of being a, 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 a conceptual artist and a gallery-based or uh, an even museum-based artist. And I started making comics in the mid-90s. And it was really... Um, it's always been a part of what I do, but these comics that I made sort of the mid nineties through the, the, through like 2010, they were, um, they were d- different and weird. They were artworks for museums. And then I took a little break from comics and, uh, and just thought for a couple of years, actually just thought about what I wanted to do. Um, and part of my thought process was looking at old 
uh, old comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I began sort of uh, regularly trolling through these online comics archives. So the, uh-huh. the stuff that's public domain that you can put online freely. Uh, right. And there's tens of thousands of comic books that are in the public domain that you can you can look at. And I just started um, I started seeing before I would even read the page of one of these old comics, I, I would sort of my own narrative would pop in my head. Like, you know, what is this guy yelling about? What is that monster doing? And uh, and then it just sort of hit me. I, I'll just use this uh, method of of cultural hijacking, which is something that's been around for a long, a long time since the mm-hmm. 50s. Um, and even earlier as sort of just collage. Right. Uh, and I'll just take the old comics and use them as the raw material, the underdrawing to make to make new work. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I tried, I did a, like a, a six page test run. Like, can I do this? Is this going to, is this going to work? And they end up being the first six pages of Pinko Joe. And then I, so I, I just started making Pinko Joe without any publisher, without any knowledge of like where I was going with it, which is the opposite of, how I tell my students to make things. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, know, you got a plan. I tell them you got a plan. You got to know where you're going. You want to you want to write the last page first so you know where you're going to end up. Right. No. It's, it, and it, it, so I got to the end of Pinko Joe, and I I thought uh, this isn't done. Like I, you know, I really screwed this up. And so I thought, you know what? I'll just make it a trilogy. And then I, uh, so I went to the end of the third book and figured out where I wanted to be and then worked backwards from there. Sort of made up for my mistake. So, so you, you plotted it out in a sense, uh, after the first few pages, after the initial foray into Pinko Joe. After the first 96 pages, I figured (laughs) out. The entire first book. And so the, the comics that you, Tell me a little bit about the process that was involved in um, working with the original comics. These are mostly, as you said, these are all comics that were in public domain. So they can be reprinted, you know, by anyone at any time without, uh, you know, concern for copyright holders or things like that. Um, And at the end of the book, you give credit where credit is due to those artists uh, who have been credited elsewhere and who you know of. Um, so, so what's the process then? You find a, a, a comic, and then what happens? So, um, I, you know, I, I have a narrative in mind. Like, oh, I want, I want, uh, like in Greeny Josephini, for example, the second volume. Mm-hmm. I wanted to uh, to engage the prison industrial complex. Right. In some way, I wanted to talk about prisons a little bit, and so I. Um, uh, so it's a female protagonist. So I, you know, how many comics have women in prisons in mm-hmm. them? And there's actually in the 50s, there's a handful. Like there's, it's not just one. There's there's a bunch. Wow. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a a huge amount, but there was enough there that I could sort of like, okay, I, I take this page from this story. And then I can link this page from that story and, and, you know, basically kind of collage together uh, a visual narrative that I could write 
then. I could write the dialogue. I could write the whatever sort of panel mm-hmm. panel descriptions or whatever whatever needed to be written. So then I take those pages and I strip out uh, all the text and all the color, and I just have the the original line work from the original artist. And then I turn that into a blue line. Okay. Uh, that I actually actually print onto Bristol board. Uh huh. And then uh, and then I letter the thing and put the pan and draw the panels in, and then I ink the whole thing. You know, I'm so, I'm oftentimes sort of like changing things as necessary in order for the narrative to fit. Right, right. So so you're actually, you know, manipulating. You're actually not it's not like wholesale swiping. It's it's, you know, taking it as inspiration and then putting it through the manipulation music, uh, machine uh, of your hand and um, and transforming it into something entirely new. Yeah, you know the the pages. Usually, it's um, I try to try to capture entire stories where I can, mm-hmm. or or um, you know I'll take a few pages out. Maybe I'll swap pages. Like, oh, I really need this to happen, so I'm going to use this page. And and but the, so it ends up being a lot of artwork by disparate artists. Right. And by re-inking everything, and I. I, my own hand appears in throughout the the book, and that my sort of crabby inked line sort of unites everything. And so the characters' faces may sort of shift slightly or morph from page to page as I'm you know as I'm sort of transforming everything, but the line is consistent, and the and the and the use of um, Black is consistent. Was there anything that struck you when you started looking through this material originally? Um, was there anything that struck you or stood out about the material, the stories, the the worldview, the attitudes that prevailed in the original material? Because it seems like, you know, what you're doing with the original material and its original purpose is, is in some ways, you know, just turning it on its head. Yeah. Well, I... The um, there aren't any black people mm-hmm. <laughs> in these comics. Right. The roles of women are uh, reduced to that of like uh, uh, you know something that should, needs to be saved, and, and or somebody who is pure evil, and you know is a demon or some kind of succubus or something. There's a lot of uh, in especially in like the the kids comics there's a lot of uh racist imagery mm-hmm. um uh and so you know the the comics are a reflection of their time late the late 1940s early 1950s um it was a bad time to be anything other than a white male yeah and and uh and so uh you know with that as the source material then then how do you counter how do you counter that? And so that's what I spent a lot of time struggling with is is um, against what was being portrayed, the you know the things that I think are sort of uh, wrong, and not just you know oh it was a different time, like people knew it was wrong then too, like mm-hmm. it's not a, it's not a surprise. And so 
I don't really have a lot of sympathy for these sort of racist, sexist uh, artists. A lot of what we're talking about, I think, in the work is uh, crime comics and um, uh, sci-fi comics. Is that what the origins, the material that you're drawing from? Yeah, in Pinko Joe, it's almost uh, exclusively crime comics. There's a little bit of sci-fi comics. In Greeny Josephini, it's um, there's because I wanted because uh, one of the mistakes of Pinko Joe is that there's no strong female protagonist, which was me sort of struggling with the material and almost getting sort of subsumed by it. And so Greeny Josephini, I knew I, the second volume I wanted it to be a female protagonist, and even then it was a struggle to find. Uh, instances where the woman wasn't a victim somehow, and even you know per panel. Yeah, finding a female uh, protagonist, particularly in a prison comic, <laughs> um, <laughs> that that had to be a daunting task. How long did it take to find something like that? Uh, well, I mean, I I I had to make some changes, and you know, even then, like even though the book's titled Greeny Josephini, I think that only half the book is is Greeny stories. Uh, and the rest is is Pinko Joe, uh, again, because I was still st- struggling to find female, female protagonists that weren't set in a racist jungle sort of, you know, Sheena kind of situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually wondering, it makes me think now that you might at some point have to, you know, if you're going to continue to use that material. And, and of course, that's up in the air. Um, you, you actually literally transform the character from male to female or something like that. I mean, that, <laughs> that, would, yeah. that sounds like a lot of work. I might as well sit down and do my own figure draw. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> the next book, um, again, what's the title of the next book? The uh, the last, the, so the third, so the, the trilogy is called the, uh, forced collaboration trilogy and, you know, forced collaboration is just one of those euphemisms. It's the kind of, uh, Forced collaboration just sort of made sense in sort of Trump's America. The last book is called Red, White, and You Blew It All to Hell. Yeah, Red, White, and You Blew It All to Hell. Um, yeah. I love that title. It's pretty funny. Um, so do you continue then working with material from the 40s and the 50s? That's like your your world. Yeah, I mean, I to, to uh, you know, I painted myself into a corner, and I'm waiting for the paint to dry. <laughs> uh, I've actually finished... The red, white, and you blew it all to hell is finished. It's it. I would like to um, I would like to add maybe it, right now it's sitting at like 48 pages. And I was um, I loved when I was a kid. I don't know if you remember these the giant sized uh, books that would come out. Um, oh sure. Uh, and they would be these sort of like uh, there would be some continuity stories, but then there would also be crazy stories in there as well and so i was thinking of red white and you blew it all to hell as a kind of giant sized uh volume of of uh of the series and so mm-hmm. it's actually it would actually be smaller in page count which i think is funny so yeah kind of like you know the old 25 cent giants or 80 page giants those kinds of things yeah. you know yeah, yeah. I love those. Yeah, me too. Those were those were a lot of fun when we were kids. Are you working again with crime comics or, yeah. or uh-huh, primarily crime? Well, crime. in the so in uh, the end of Greeny Josephini is the apocalypse. Right. Like the, the world right. uh, the world's destroyed. 
And so uh, the third volume is the post-apocalypse. So it's um, it's a lot of sci-fi, but also um, I managed to uh, to work some jungle pages into there, you know, because everybody's in tatters, and so they're you know everybody's wearing loincloths. Um, yeah, and and uh, yeah, so it's mostly like jungle and sci-fi in the mm-hmm. third volume, mm-hmm. uh, talking cool. apes, that kind of thing. <laughs> okay so so it neatly wraps things up yeah i was uh, uh at the end of greeny josephini i was i was concerned it's funny because uh, you know when you're reading these comics there's a certain amount of distance you know an ironic distance in the way you tell the story and and um you know we're all very we're very aware that this is satire as you're reading it there's no no doubt about that the, and by the way the dialogue is very funny i mean it's very funny <laughs> um i mean it really is it can be very stilted and artificial and it's just that quality of stilted artificiality that makes it so funny uh yeah. i off the top of my head i can't quote any of the things that pinko joe might say but um there's some really funny lines in there and um so but at the end of greeny josephini i'm like caring for these characters <laughs> Uh, you know which is probably the most probably one of those things that you didn't expect an audience to do but it's like you know i want to see them survive this and come through it all and and all of that which is kind of a side you know um benefit i guess of the books maybe that goes against what you're trying to do but um (laughs) well i mean you can't talk about two people for so long and not be a little bit involved did you see Empire Strikes Back when you were a kid? Did you see it in the theater? Sure, I saw it in the theater. Uh, maybe when, I'm older than you. Uh, no, I think I'm I'm a couple years older than you. I was I was born in '60, so okay. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So uh, remember that feeling? I I was so mad when I walked out of Empire Strikes Back. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. Because you don't know what you you don't know what's going uh, what's going on. You know, yeah, uh, and it's going to be another four years, right? Before, like Star Wars came out what in seventy seven. Yep. Yeah. And Empire came out in what eighty one, eighty two. Yeah. Yeah. In those days, we really and, had to wait a long time. Yeah, and I was so mad, and and so that's what I was thinking of when I went at the end of Greedy Josephine. I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, uh, just gonna make everybody mad here. <laughs> um, is that when when that's empire strikes back is the one you know i was more of a star trek guy than a star wars guy but empire is is the one where um um uh, hans is is frozen right and he's sent yeah yeah he's frozen so you know we're all really ticked off at the end because it's not like a saturday morning serial from the 40s or 30s where you go back next week and you know the next chapter i mean there was that conceit about star wars right you know it was yeah it was you know based and inspired by movie serials but but you were you had to wait four years so you're going to be an entirely different person by the time you come back to the next film i don't know how long it was between empire and return of the jedi but i remember Uh, it was long enough that i was an adult by the time jedi came out yeah i was i was in my mid-20s i think and i was um by that time i'd kind of lost enthusiasm uh for yeah. the whole thing and it felt to me i always felt like um return of the jedi was anticlimactic um in a, in a lot of ways you know it seemed like to rush the ending of it and the whole thing with the ewoks and stuff it, it didn't really grab me in the same way 
And then, uh, you know, it's funny because I just saw an illustration and this, this goes into something perhaps that we're, that we might both find of, of interest is there, there was an image from the illustration, the, the set designer's illustration or the, the art director's illustration of the end of um, Return of the Jedi when they walk into the throne room and they're, uh, you know, um, celebrated for their victory. They're, the the illustration came, as somebody co- said in the comments, looks like it came right out of Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. I mean, it could have been ripped right out of, of you know, Nazi Germany. And, and the use of that imagery, uh, you know, with all of these regimented soldiers in this grid formation that's really tight with these really high verticals, you know, um, really kind of scary. Yeah. You know? You know, the, the, the fascists had uh, Bauhaus-trained designers. Yeah, yeah, they did, and and they knew how to boss. use that language. Yeah, Hugo Boss designed the SS uniforms. Right, right, and then went on to des- design great motorcycle regalia and things of that nature. I mean, there, there's this this idea of how to communicate, you know, power, um, and and I guess you know this kind of oppressiveness through the language of visual art that they were so adept at. You know, yeah. Yes. Riefenstahl and, and people like that. And it, sometimes, and it's funny how it gets out into the culture and we don't even realize, you know, what we're referencing when, you know, an artist who's working on a Star Wars movie is using the same language. I, I can't imagine that George Lucas didn't, didn't make that connection. Of course he knew, you know, Triumph of the Will. Um, you know, so it's kind of odd to have seen it reappear, you know, later on in again. And this is again, how the language can be kind of perverted and utilized by ostensibly, you know, uh, let's say democratic, um, movements, you know, like, okay, the revolutionary movement in star Wars, those guys are, you know, ostensibly the good guys. Right. And yet they're using this language that is the language of, of power and domination as opposed to liberation. Well, I think that that's, um, you know, the meaning, at least for me, the meaning in an artwork can't be fixed, right? Mm. At least a, uh, like a painting, a sculpture, uh, the meaning shifts over time, you know, the, uh, like a Pollock painting in the 1940s was a radical thing. Yeah. And now it's one of the most conservative, um, expensive, valuable uh, things that you could have. Mm-hmm. Right. And that the 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 sheer monetary value of a Pollock forever for me eclipses whatever Pollock was trying to do with the painting. Right. All I see are dollar signs there. Mm-hmm. So that transformation of artwork over time now i think comics are uh because it's a combination of words and pictures comics are resistant to that sort of um uh deformation of meaning mm-hmm. that's interesting but, but uh you know nothing is nothing is forever but well because it's words and pictures, you think, are you you're saying that it, it sort of locks it in place and time? 
I mean, context. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can misread Pinko Joe as a pro-Trump uh, <laughs> fascist, you know, because he's literally saying, uh, "I I like to punch Nazis," or <laughs> that kind of that kind of right. thing. Right. So it's explicit in a way that that. It's explicitly uh, saying, uh, "Trump sucks." Yeah, and so you never. It, were you in your own work? Was there ever a moment where I mean, has your work always been explicit in that way? Um, because your Instagram account certainly is nobody could mistake it for anything other than what it is. You know, not only the title Pinko Joe, but also the approach. Um, the images every day are very, very upfront about what they're about. Have you all has your work always been like that? No, I, I think it was really uh, working on Pinko Joe. Uh, pushed me over the edge <laughs> to, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm old now. I have tenure at Rice University. I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll, you know, I'll, I'll have to die <laughs> for them to get me out. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how they think about it, but that's how I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like, uh, you know, it, the, with the Instagram, it started last. It started with the with the lockdown, with the yeah. with the uh, pandemic, and I live alone, and um, I started watching a lot more news, and and was like everybody else, sort of like simultaneously bored and fearful and angry. Uh, you know the. Um, uh, watching George Floyd get murdered on yeah. television uh, yeah. uh, incensed me. And I felt like I just couldn't stay silent any mm-hmm. anymore. Like I, I needed to say something and uh, without worrying about, uh, you know, what will other people think if I say these things. And so, and what's happened really um, since you started to do that in terms of your work, what's happened with it? Oh, I think that, that where the Instagram was originally just meant to sort of like uh, fill the time and give me a little practice and, and with galleries and museums and, you know, all cultural venues shut, like Instagram was suddenly the only place where you could interact with other artists. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and that's probably been the biggest impact is, you know, meeting people like you and uh, and others uh, just by Instagram, by doing these, these sort of daily, uh, you know, moments of rage or whatever. Well, and so it, that's true. And And what I love about what you're doing and it doesn't always happen, you know, I mean, people will use Instagram to put stuff up and, and they put it up and it, and it, you know, it engages you, whether it's comics or illustration or whatnot, but in some sense, what you're doing is, is you've conceived of, of this tool, Instagram as your gallery space. And, and so the work you're doing is ephemeral. It's of the moment. Um, but it's also, you know, um, it's got the same kind of conceptual underpinnings, if you will, of um, a lot of, you know, I guess you'd say post 1970s conceptual art. I mean, there's this this quality about it 
that to me anyway, um, is, is kind of, it's all kind of unified in a way you've got the perfect vehicle and you've got the perfect imagery, uh, along with the words for this vehicle, you know, it's just like this perfect marriage that, um, feels very holistic, you know, to me in, in a way, uh, <laughs> it's all accidental, man. Yeah, but it's one of the things that I, well, isn't it always, right? I mean, that's, you know, these kinds of things are all part of the process, right? It's part of the process yeah. of being in the studio and doing the work every day. Uh, you don't just create, you know, I mean, going back to Pollock, Pollock didn't just start, you know, painting, you know, drip paintings. They developed over a period of time. Well, that's the yeah. process. And that's kind of the process here. It's a process of thinking and engaging and viewing and then also making right and uh and eventually something clicks the tumblers all kind of fall into place and that's kind of what's happened to me for what you're doing with this and it's it's unlike i mean uh, there's a lot of stuff on instagram but in some ways this is charged in a way that a lot of stuff isn't quite doesn't feel quite as visceral or or, or you know perfect well conceived if you if you catch my meaning uh uh thanks you know it's it's just the stuff that I do. I don't really, um, uh, I'm a very bad gauge of what actually people will like. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the stuff that I like the best, uh, most folks don't, don't like. Uh, and then I'll put something up that I think is just dumb or, you know, like, you know, you didn't really, you didn't really nail it this time, bro. And 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 it gets shared and shared and shared and shared. The Instagram account now. Are you working differently with the imagery there, uh, or is it coming from the same sources, or is it you know how's that process? Well, I mean, with the the Instagram stuff, um, I'm really just I'm, again, it's I'm using uh, for the most part, um, uh, you know, work from the public domain. I, I I'm less sort of like with the books, I think because they're, they're commercial enterprise, even though it's not a very good commercial enterprise with the books, I try to credit, I credit all the artists that I can find. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of artists working this period, they weren't credited at all, or, you know, the attribution of their work is, is really iffy. Right. Um, with Instagram, because it's free and I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, I'm doing it just because I want to do it. Um, I don't attribute any of the artists that I, that I'm uh, riffing off of, which uh, I think, you know, it gets up the ass of some people who are welcome to unfollow me. If they don't <laughs> like, <laughs> they are very welcome to unfollow me. Uh, and yeah. And so it's, it's different from Pinko Joe and, <clears throat> and the books in that, and it's much faster. Like, uh, usually, for the most part, it's just like a single image. I mm -hmm. do once in a while tell like a three or four panel uh, story. Um, just you know, when I when something occurs that uh, I you know I can link a couple of ideas together or something. Uh, I've been I've stolen some Batman stuff. Yeah, again, you know, not making any profit. Time Warner, don't sue me. <laughs> um, uh, just for fun, you know, I, who, who doesn't like Batman? I, right. I, it just, I saw the, the R on Robin's 
tunic. And I thought, what if that was a Q? <laughs> so Batman and Q. And it was just a good way to have little conversations with, I don't know anybody that is part of that movement, but it was a way for me to have conversations with somebody from that movement. Um, have you found that people reach out and talk to you about the, the images you're sharing? Um, has it opened the door to communication with, you know, people who are like myself, obviously, but um, others who are just, you know, motivated or, or interested in the imagery or pissed off by the imagery? Yeah, I've gotten a few death threats. Have you? Which, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm very proud, very <laughs> proud of them. <laughs> I think the first death threat I got, uh, I laughed first and then I and then I was immediately proud. And then a little bit scared, but not really. But that, yeah. that's a weird order. That's a weird emotional reaction to a death threat. The people that are of the opposite sort of uh, of the sort of lunatic mm -hmm. uh, persuasion, they'll try and uh, you know platform off my back. I just delete them. I block yeah. them and delete their comments. Yeah, and then you don't you don't have to worry about it again. But it is kind of interesting. I suppose there's kind of visceral quality in the way that you know you've rattled somebody um, and gotten in a lot of ways. That's kind of the response that you want more so than preaching to the choir. In a way, it's it's um, you want to kind of upset the apple cart or you know um, with the work. And uh, at least I'm assuming you do. Um. You know, I don't have any illusions that I'm going to change anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's um, but it it rankles. I'm hoping both to make people that are sort of uh, sane and rational. Like, I hope they laugh once in a while. And then I hope the lunatics, I hope it hurts them emotionally for a minute. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's going to cause them to reconsider their their. Um, you know, hell bent. Right. Demeanor. But it might ra raise somebody's blood pressure a little bit for. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> it's, it is really a, a moment where trying to, where we, you know, this discussion of polarization that, you know, we keep seeing um, and we're aware of. It's a moment where even trying to have a conversation, a rational conversation between, you know, a opposing points of view is very, very difficult. You know, they're weaponizing the pandemic now. Yeah. yeah. They, 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 and they're not, they're not pretending that they're not. So I, I don't think it's possible to have a rational conversation with somebody who's, who's essentially committing a war crime. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know, I think that's not too, that's not off the mark. I think that's uh, absolutely <laughs> apropos, you know, I mean, literally, we, we, you know, playing with people's lives in, in a very cavalier, you know, uh, more than cavalier. It's, it's, it, I mean, there's this, this kind of, when you listen to the politicians talk or the people on Fox news talk, you know, Tucker Carlson and people like that. Uh, and I don't, I always hear them second hand but uh when you hear about that stuff it's extraordinary you know the powers 
be never used to be quite so bold and upfront with the stuff that they were doing. But these guys are like out right out in front, you know, saying really they don't care what the consequences are. Um, and, and you know that these people who are particularly in the mouthpieces we see, you know, uh, speaking for the movement or whatever, most of them are smart enough to know what they're doing and to know the impact it's going to have. And they literally just don't care. Uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine being so, I mean, really, what's the word I'm looking for? Cruel or it's worse than cruel, murderous, you know? Murderous, yeah. You know, how, how can you, how can, for the sake of, you know, the power, the power of the party or whatever, how, how is it they sleep at night? I don't, I don't understand because lives are in the balance, you know? Um, and big people beds listen, of money. That's how they sleep at night. Yeah, uh, with big beds of money. But even then, man, I, I just can't imagine that you could go quite so far, you know, uh, that that your conscience can be completely assuaged by, you know, tons of money. But I suppose if I had tons of money, I'd find out maybe differently. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I I don't think any any of those folks are looking at what I'm doing. So. Right. No, obviously, you know, yeah. obviously not. But as revealing as it is of, of the times we live in at the same time um, and, and, you know, the quality of the times for better or for worse, at the same time, I'm glad it's out there and I run into it every day <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> you know, despite the terrible circumstances, you know, your anger brightens my day. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said. Uh, to me well you know i was just thinking about the, the difference between what i do on instagram and the books is that i think there is a timelessness to the books like the books for the most part i'm not trying to speak to yeah. um current events the, the instagram is definitely definitely um you know i read the news i get mad i make a a, a comic that that says i'm mad mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and I'm glad you pointed that out because it's true. Um, you know, the books are more about principle and about economics, about economic, about power system, you know, the use of power, um, about the structure of society. They are much broader issues. And so they speak to, you know, societal issues that are not necessarily of the moment. I mean, they certainly pervade our lives now and they're very timely, but at the same time, whether I read them today or read them 10 years ago, um, they're still speaking about something that is immediate, you know, to me, because that the structure of the society hasn't changed. It's very much what it is. And certainly, you know, so they speak to that very well. And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, whether you buy them today or you buy them, you know, five years from now, they still speak to the same issues that we're all dealing with all the time. Yeah, that's sort of not exactly timelessness, but but I definitely wanted the books to have a um, a longer shelf life. I, you know, it's it a year from now, maybe we'll forget about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's latest outrage, but. We won't forget about fascism because it'll it'll be uh, sitting on top of us. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, um, a, a, in one way or another, as it it seems to have been for quite some time. There is this um, this characterization 
of socialist democracies that has kind of become well more than carry it's become a caricature really you know that's used by the right like a sledgehammer that's really evolved in the last 40 years i mean since reagan and it wasn't always the case but there seemed to be you know certainly the era of middle 20th century fdr um you even mentioned uh in pinko joe you talk about eisenhower and um how eisenhower's last you know farewell address in regard to the military industrial complex and all that kind of thing you know portends to a different perhaps a different path we could have taken but things seem to change since reagan came to power in in 80 and have just gotten so much worse since then and that whole idea of what socialism means what social democracy means is completely lost to this caricature which has nothing to do with reality really at all <laughs> well and you know uh, we should all smoke more cigarettes and drink more sugar water <laughs> right <laughs> uh well. you know and and th now the sugar water i'm behind that i think sugar water is a good idea but <laughs> cigarettes you know if you get sick now yeah. If you get really, really sick, even if you have health insurance, you're mm -hmm. going to lose your house. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. And that's, and that's, and they, they, they portray that as natural. Like, yeah. well, you know, of course, you know, if you've got these, this expensive and, and it doesn't have to be like that. What you're, I was just going to say what you're saying actually literally happened to in my in my family um, about 20 years ago. My mother passed away uh, in early 2001 from ovarian cancer, and she was divorced um, in between you know moments of she lost her insurance which she had had through my father and so when she got sick she didn't have insurance and so what happened at the time was they took her house um in lieu of cash you know for now if had she gotten well she you know she could go back to her home but she wouldn't own it you know she'd be paying yeah. the state for it you know to rent it in a sense you know because they took it um, and I, I remember, you know, being threatened. I, there was a moment, see my mother, and this is very personal for me, but there was a moment when my mother said to me, you know, she knew she was very, very ill. And she said to me, just protect, all I want you to do, and she signed over power of attorney to me. And she said, all I want you to do is, is, you know, protect my house. And so she's in the hospital and at the time I didn't know the first thing about Medicare. I didn't know the first thing about Medicaid. I didn't know the difference. You know, I didn't know how they were applied from state to state. I had no idea about any of this. And, and at the time there was no real way to find out. It was really the language surrounding all of these things was really dense and difficult mm. for somebody who's uninitiated. There was nobody to help me, nobody to talk to. And, uh, I had refused to sign initially the papers that would sign my mother up for Medicaid because they told me that, you know, they were going to take my mother's house if I signed for Medicaid. And, and I'm fighting against this idea. My mother, on the one hand, has said, protect the house. And then, you know, on the other hand, in order to get her cared for, um, I had to sign away the house. And so I'll never forget this. Um, a doctor from the hospital that was treating her in connecticut called me 
and said, if you don't come up here and sign these papers today, we're going to put your mother on the street. And my mother was stage oh my four. My, my mother was stage four ovarian cancer. So Jesus. she's dying. And they're saying, you know, if you don't come up here today, and I lived in Brooklyn at the time, and we're talking about my mother lived in um, in Connecticut, uh, you know, a couple hours away. Um, get on the train, get here by this time, otherwise she's gone. You know, and it was like, wow. holy, and this was a doctor calling. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it, you know. And uh, obviously, ultimately, I'll, that's what I had to do, you know. I mean, what was I going to do? Um, it it was, it was a terrible situation and it made me, I mean, it broke my heart, you know, uh, it, 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 my mother was passing, was, was, you know, she was going to die anyway. And, uh, and thank God, you know, I often do this, (laughs) um, you know, she passed away before she was sent to a Medicaid facility. And I toured a number of those facilities around that area when, you know what was going to happen if mom got released from the hospital um where was she going to go because we didn't have any money and so you know you can't if you don't have any money you're going to go to a medicaid facility and a medicaid facility is like you know it's pretty frightening at least at the time it was pretty damn frightening um i walked into one place and there was a guy in a wheelchair unattended um, you know, hunched over beneath this light bulb, you know, in a light socket that was like straight out of, you know, some horrible sci-fi movie, you know, cracks in the wall and, you know, rats running yeah. around the floor. I mean, it was really terrible. Uh, you know, the whole thing was a terrible situation. Anyway, that just points to what, you know, people face every day. You know, they face ruin every day because of the medical bills um they face you know situations that are we we would not put our worst enemy in you know although i you know i i wouldn't mind seeing trump in one of those situations but (laughs) you know really you know i mean that that that's the situation and the situation hasn't hasn't changed you know in regard to that um no it's gotten worse i think it's 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 even worse now than it was it and and the, you know, the attempt to normalize that and demonize democratic socialism, um, you know, there's, you can't compromise with these folks. There is, there shouldn't be any compromise. It's, it's not um, only demonizing uh, democratic socialism, it's demonizing illness. You know, there's this yeah. this idea that if you get ill and this is, this is a prevalent idea, you know, and, and, and unless you've encountered, you know, illness. Uh, there's this this prevalent idea that, you know, if you got ill, you brought it up on yourself or, you know, there have been those mouthpieces on the right that have literally said those words, spread that idea. This, uh, and you could see that right back in when Trump was uh, mimicking and, and mocking that reporter who stood up in front of him and was was trying to ask a question through his disability and Trump Trump in front of an entire crowd who laughed along with him you know mocked him the idea that this was this person's situation was not something to uh, care for or have compassion for or empathy for but instead something to be mocked and but that cavalier that cruel attitude is unfortunately ever present it's depraved. It's depraved indifference. 
and yeah. and I don't think that that uh, politically we necessarily should negotiate with the depraved. Make everybody take the goddamn vaccine. Right. Go back to uh, connection to science fiction, but it's it's silly, but it is it's, it plays over in my head. You know, there's this moment in Star Trek where Spock is talking to Kirk about. Uh, a, a crew member who whose response time is down and you know is moody and and uh, they're erratic and their performance is erratic and uh, slipshod and Kirk says and and he's refusing to go on vacation you know to de-stress and Kirk says well the crew crew members' rights are subject to the impact they're having on on the crew and on the ship and and it ends where they're impacting the community. And he, Spock says, well, that's the crew member is James Kirk and Kirk is like, left with no choice. He's got to go on vacation. Well, you know, in a sense, that attitude, I mean, we, we do not li- we are not islands unto ourselves. This idea of freedom that somehow freedom means that I am an island unto myself. I may act uninhibitedly, uninhibitedly uh, in whatever manner I choose because I live in a country, quote unquote, that is free. And that's what freedom means. I can do whatever I want. But that's bullshit. The reality is you live in a community and we make choices to live in a community. And as a community, we have responsibility for and to one another because we are all dependent upon one another, whether you really like to believe it or not. Right. And so you know, vaccination, it, it, being vaccinated and going out into the world and interacting with people in the world, uh, if you're going to do that, you have some responsibility to the community. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're destroying the community. You know, you're perpetuating, you're participating in its destruction. Thus ended the, the rant. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good rant. I'm right there with you. Yeah. You know, and so that's one of the things that you say often in in the Instagram account and point to get vaccinated. It's stupid if you're not vaccinated. And, you know, it seems self-evident, you know, to, to someone like myself anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. You have a responsibility to your community, whatever community it is. Now, if you want to live in a mountain, you know, off by yourself and not interact with people in general ever, or even animals who it's possible you could communicate the disease to um, in isolation, maybe in a bubble someplace. That's a different story. But then what you, you're not going to be utilizing roads. You're not going to be utilizing infrastructure. You're not going to be utilized. You're not going to shop in the same places. You're, 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 you have to isolate yourself. Otherwise, really, it, it's, uh, yeah. Oh, God. It's really and yeah, it, but you know, shouting "get vaccinated" at somebody isn't—they're not going to get vaccinated. No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> they're not. shouting at people get vaccinated, and uh, and I don't think it's working. Yeah. So you uh, live, but it feels good to shout "get vaccinated." Well, like, and we'll I, say that. Yeah, and I think that's part of what your your comics do for people too. You know, through uh, vicariously living through your image in a sense you know uh we vent our anger through the images that you're putting out there and um i mean that's why it's such a bright spot in my day (laughs) because (laughs) because otherwise you know i'm not getting i i'm not going to get into fistfights with with people although you know i've had encounters with i went to buy lumber 
uh, the other day, and I, I went to the lumber local lumber yard, and um, I was wearing a mask and a Batman T-shirt. And this guy in the lumber yard says to me, well, that's kind of ironic. Now, he was not wearing a mask. And he looked, I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, you're wearing a superhero shirt and you got a mask on. Now, now, never mind the fact that Batman wears a mask. OK, um, <laughs> Spider-Man wears a mask. OK, you know, um, uh, they all except for Superman. Right. You know, and Wonder Woman, um, they all wear masks. OK, uh, never mind that. But I'm thinking to myself, really, I'm here to buy lumber. And you're going to give me a problem because I'm wearing a mask that haven't we gotten past this? You know, this 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 point where we have to have this argument. Needless to say, I didn't buy any lumber. That particular. <laughs> you really walked out without you without your lumber. I walked out That's without the, lumber. I was you like the terrorists win, man. Well, no, you know, in that particular case, they said, I'm not going to spend my money here. I, I do not want to spend my money with this guy. Um, I'll spend my money someplace where, you know, people are rational and I don't have to have this argument, you know. Yeah, and, I'd like to know where that lumber place is, <laughs> where people are rational. Well, <laughs> I'll go uh, there. actually, you know, I, I, I know it sounds silly, but I, I found it at Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> Guys were wearing masks, so it was okay. Uh, but you know, uh, that's, again, this is a moment where something that seems commonsensical, uh, has been so highly politicized that we can't act rationally. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's lunacy. Yeah, it is. So let's talk a little bit about the, in comics, where do you find your inspiration in comics? I mean, aside from looking at stuff that's, that's the, the meat of the work that you're doing, uh, what other, are, are there other comics that you're reading that you enjoy or that have been, that motivate you, you know, um, or through, through your life, you know, was comics a big part of your life growing up? Yeah. I mean, comics were, uh, I, I grew up in a small, town in West Virginia and we had uh, a um, uh, drugstore and they had a soda they had a, a soda fountain in a magazine rack uh-huh. and that was I'd never been to a museum that was culture to me was the magazine rack at the at the drugstore sure <laughs> there was no internet and so yeah so I grew up reading comics and when I went to college my uh, drawing teacher really uh, uh, leaned on me and said, "Look, you gotta gotta put this away. You're not gonna <laughs> learn how to draw from looking at comic books." And I did. I I went to college. I did something that um, I wish my students would do, but I don't think any of them have ever done. When I went to college, I decided that I was going to listen to my teachers because uh -huh. they were professionals and they probably knew better than me and that I would listen to them and try to see things the way they were seeing them. And then later on, I would, dis I could disagree with them, but I would try it their way first. Sure. My students don't, don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe I don't, I'm not as strict with them as my teachers were with me, but, um, yeah, and so I put comics away for a long time and really only uh, coming out of the other side of my MFA degree did I start to think about comics again, but as a, in a more sort of um, nuanced way. 
Mm-hmm. So as a as a um, an easily readable platform for a lot of people, and even people with sort of low literacy skills could read comics. And that's and that's where I basically kind of got back into comics, not as a not as a uh, you know somebody who wanted to draw Batman, but I was making these you know for the Museum of Modern Art in New York and for Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. And so they were really, really different. Um, and then as far as influences, uh, you know, the, the comics that I grew up with, it's nostalgia, right? I mean, those are the comics uh, that sort of told you about the world in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm still nostalgic for 1970s uh, comics of any sort of form, like so nostalgic that, I would never consider doing what I'm doing to the comics from the early fifties. I would never consider doing any of that to contemporary comics or comics from the seventies. Like it, it, it's like spray painting, you know, bad words on a church or something. It's, I'm sure. just not going to do it. What were your favorite uh, comics from that period? Uh, I was a DC guy. I know that's not very popular. Everybody loves to say that they were into Marvel, um, uh, there was just something that was that that the DC comics were a little cleaner somehow or smoother. Uh, it just seemed like there was always a lot of, and I guess this is true, like interpersonal drama in Marvel comics. That yeah, like I had enough chaos in my life as a child. Like I didn't want more. Mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted order. <laughs> Sure. fascism and <laughs> see comics where you know batman is uh oh, is yes. uh you know massive fascist yeah absolutely. um uh and yeah so that that that's that and then today um today i look i look at everything i don't really read comics and especially like mainstream comics um uh, but I look at a lot of comics. I, I have the the great fortune of traveling a lot because I'm an academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I love when I go to a new place uh, to find out, like, who's making comics in this area and what kind of comics are they making and what's the history of comics in this area. So, you know, I spent a long time in Finland. They have a great comic scene in Finland. Mm-hmm. And like, who knew? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, there's um, not Finnish artist, but another an artist from the north, um, from Norway, Jens Stiva, uh, who does a comic called Dunce. Maybe you've seen it on Instagram and elsewhere. Um, I, by talking to him via Instagram briefly, it sort of pointed me in the direction of Norwegian comics for a little bit. And I was really surprised to see how many great comics there were in Norway. And, um, you know, it's sort of, then you, your eyes begin to get opened up to, wow, there's a lot of really great stuff I've never heard of before. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. And so that's really the joy in comics for me, uh, really for like the past, uh, five or six years, uh, is, is, um, uh, finding and meeting interesting 
living comic artists and then also finding out the history of comics in other countries. You know, yeah. Spent three months in Leipzig um, right before the pandemic. And um, I'm crazy for the East German comics that they made during, you know, during the Soviet era. And, and they, they have a museum dedicated to them in Leipzig. And I spent, really? I spent a long time in there, more time, I imagine, than most people spend in there. They had originals. Um, uh, yeah, just lovely, these lovely East German comics that are uh, amazing to look at. Well, and, and that's really fascinating. East German comics that were done during the occupation. And so, you know, in terms of were they was it propaganda? What, what kind of material was it? Are we talking? About? No, it was it was um, it, it's uh, all about uh, they're cowboys. Really? And they and they travel the world. And during uh, so they go to uh, they spend a lot of time in America. But they're in America, in the South during slavery, and they're and these uh, East German cowboys are are helping the slaves, right? <laughs> to like, and it's cr- crazy, crazy stuff. And the color on these uh, on these books is uh, of a level, you know. Leipzig is a uh, historically, it's sort of uh, it's the center of printing in Europe. And it's a really, really important place right up until the, the fascists took over. And then and then it all kind of went to shit and never recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the the uh, the history of printing, I see I did my undergrad uh, as a printmaker. And okay. so and so I'm obsessed not only with with comics and making comics, but I'm also obsessed with printing and printing history and how how comics are printed. Um, and that feeds no. a lot of my my sort of uh, drive. Okay, yeah, I was just going to say it all. It all makes sense now. Um, in your book, comics making, you talk a yeah. lot about the the um, process, the four color process, uh, particularly as used, you know, up until what the nineteen nineties or so in comics and as a printmaker i'm sure that all makes you know perfect sense and and no wonder in a sense you your books and this is quite something i think actually both the instagram and and the books emphasize is the quality of the print um both the paper choice that you've made for pinko joe which is like a heavier duty kind of newsprint thicker kind of newsprint quality coloristic and you know color quality and also you know the the way you uh you utilize color the way you play with registration but also the way you layer it um you know points to what you're talking about your background as a printmaker because it's got that very tactile kind of quality yeah, it's totally, it's uh, definitely something that uh, that I think about. Even in the, so the stuff, you know, it feels like, you know, there's a, a a printer's, you know, background there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the I think that um, a lot of people that are comic artists today, the print process is completely removed now from the experience of the artist. Yeah. And I think that there's a, I think that there's 
more information. Like if, if people would close that gap between what they make and how it's produced, uh, I think it might help inform what they do. Um, I was spacing on the name of this comic, but I just remembered it. It's called Mosaic with mm-hmm. a K. Okay. Uh, this East German comic. And um, it's, uh, I imagine you can find scans of them uh, online. But uh, I, when I, every time I'm in Germany, I haunt, they, they love flea markets in Germany. And so I haunt the flea markets looking for early copies of Mosaic. I have a stack of them. <laughs> that I can't read. Sure. They're beautiful. Oh, I'm I'm actually pulling up some images right now on my iPad and they look pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so popular and and really kind of like it wasn't towing the 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 um the government's line, right? They were doing their own thing, but it was so popular like the government couldn't really interfere with them. <laughs> you know, people loved it and they just left it alone. So I can imagine like members of the Stasi, you know, the the East German secret police, like mm-hmm. with their feet up reading copies of Mosaic about these cowboys. And is it still being printed today? You know, I it must exist in some form. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm really fascinated with the, you know, I, of course, I'm the only ones that I want to look at are, are the ones that I've romanticized. Uh, so the ones when, you know, when the wall was up, when there was the mm-hmm. East Germany and West Germany. So your interest in, in comics from around the world um, led you to a, a book that you've done this last year celebrating the work of a Mexican cartoonist, uh, Camarena. Is that how we yeah. say it? Yeah. Camarena. Can you talk a little bit about that book and about his work? Yeah. Just to roll back a little bit. I, when I started teaching comics at Rice, one of the things I started to do was buy original comic art, like right at the bottom of the market. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to find things that I, that weren't very expensive that I could show, I could use as teaching tools and show my students. And so one of the first things I bought was uh, a three-page Archie story, which is very oversized and and is probably Dan DiCarlo, but it's not um, it's not verified and there's okay. no signature, right. which is why it's so cheap. You know, you you can buy original comic art. Some of it is very, very, very expensive. Yeah. But sitting right next to it are terrific things that are not expensive at all because mm-hmm. it's not it's not something that the collectors currently care about. Yeah. And, and one of those things was um, I found these Mexican uh, drawings for Mexican comics. I found these little... Uh, Mexican comic books. I was in Mexico City in a bookstore and I found a few in a box and they're tiny, like three inches by four inches with like 92 pages. Amazing. Perfect bound and beautiful, you know, like these really crazy covers on them and then black and white or brown and white interiors. 
and just lovely. And then I did some investigating and I found a dealer that had um, that had uh, pages for complete books. So a stack of 96 drawings and selling them for a dollar a page. I don't know about where you live, but where I live in Houston, Texas, I don't know if there's anything you can buy for a dollar. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you can't even buy a cup of coffee for a dollar. And here's an original drawing, you know, of some weird ghostly scene or whatever, and it's a dollar. So I started buying these um, stacks of of comics uh, yeah. out of a sense that I wanted to rescue them. Like, sure. why, you know, they're uh, they're not expensive. They're sitting right here. L- let me take them before somebody gets the idea that they're just going to split them up and sell them by the page. Right. And scatter them to the winds and yeah, people will yeah. decorate their cool bachelor pads with a page oh, from a Mexican comic book. And so I started this sort of rescue effort. And then uh, pretty soon I ended up with almost 2000 pages. Like, <laughs> I went a little crazy. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I just I. Uh, just little by little, it's like, yeah, give me that one. Yeah, give me that one. Yeah, give me that one. Um, and of course, you know, like, I'm not, I shouldn't be the final um, resting place for these things. Like, I'm not Mexican, I'm not Mexican-American. I don't even speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm literally just holding these until somebody better comes along and we'll take them off my hands and take care of them. Um, and so uh, I did a couple of exhibitions with the with the uh, with the original art. Uh, one in Berlin, a little one in Berlin at a place called Somos Art House, and then uh, one here in Houston, and then one in Chicago. And then after the Chicago exhibition, I decided to collect. Um, to to publish a book just on Camarena because of all the artwork that I have, his is my favorite. I think he's he's uh, he's terrific. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the images now, and the book is beautiful. That's one thing uh, I want to say. But the images, um, Camarena's work is is beautiful in you know in that style um, that was prevalent at the time. I mean, it's beautiful use of a brush and ink uh yeah it's really some very you know evocative images some great use of of line and and black and white and terrific stuff and they're really only how big are the originals again the, so the book is a facsimile book fundamental camarena um so the books the the reproductions in the book are the actual size of the drawings oh okay Wow. But that's the other thing about the Mexican comic books is that they were all these tiny little comics, right? They were printed at three inches by four inches. So the the drawings themselves, they're, uh, you know, just a little two bit times, three times the, the size, like, like the way American comics are drawn at two or three times the size. Amazing. Um, but it just happens to be that these comic books were, t- were tiny. So the original drawings are, are small as well. So now you uh, had the opportunity to meet Camarena. 
or speak to him? No, I, um, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, another comic artist uh, named Augusto Mora, he lives in Mexico City. Augusto went, actually tracked Camarena down through Facebook. (laughs) And probably the only good thing that Mark Zuckerberg's Zuckerberg's ever done is, uh, is, uh, we're able to rediscover. So he found Camarena. Uh, Augusto found Camarena and then went and did an interview with him before the pandemic. And, uh, and Augusto made a little sort of biolog. He did an uh, uh, interview that we've published, but he also did this little biographical comic about going to meet Camarena. Oh, very cool. I think it's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's in the book too. And that's yeah. in the book too. Yeah. So that's great. And the whole book is in English and Spanish. Um, not speaking uh, Spanish, it was all the translation was done by an, uh, a writer in uh, Mexico City. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, I'm an academic, really. If I'm going to publish a book in a, about an artist in a different language, I really should know the language. And that's where, that's where I come up short as, a, as an academic. Well... I think you can be forgiven. I'm sure there aren't a lot of people in in the in U.S. certainly, uh, but maybe you know elsewhere as well who are aware of Camarena and his work. Is he he's aware of the book? And yes, uh, we got him copies of the book. Of course, the pandemic was raging, and so Augusto was very brave and drove out to see Camarena. And they spoke, you know, at ten feet distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have a photograph of Camarena holding a copy of the book. Of course, Camarena is wearing a mask. He's in his yeah. 80s. He's retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that um, uh, uh, Augusto told me that, that Camarena, after his wife died, Camarena stopped making art. And then um, w- with the enthusiasm of the book, Camarena is uh, painting again. Oh, wow. Isn't that great? Yeah, I think that's nice. I, you know, that's, uh, that wasn't really my intention. <laughs> well, of course not. <laughs> but I, I think it's nice. You know, I think that he felt forgotten. Yeah. And of course, he has been forgotten. Um, through no fault of his own and not because of the quality of what he was doing. It's just the circumstances of, of Mexican, uh, you know, politics and society. Are we talking that the, the the smaller comics that you're talking about were these the typical comics produced in Mexico? I mean that scale, that size, that was the common you know denominator. Um, and was there were Cam- a lot of companies producing these little little books because it was cheaper, right? I mean right. the biggest cost in printing is paper. Yeah, yeah. And so if you make something smaller, then it's it's um, it's cheaper. I mean, that's why my comics making book is is uh, four inches by six inches. It's just cheaper. So uh, these particular stories, what um, what kinds of stories are we talking about? That Camarena was he also the the author of the stories, or was he the you know just uh, the illustrator of the stories? He was just the illustrator, and he was. Um, he at at the time he 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 worked his way up from 
not knowing anything to being one of the best paid comic book artists um, in his day. Oh, okay. Uh, and he, he drew, he, they would hand him a script um, uh, and he, and he would draw them. He, uh, there was a, um, a number of people writing these stories and many of them worked under pseudonyms. So there were, there were very well-known writers uh, potentially writing these stories, but nobody, nobody knew, nobody knew who they were. And you said he was among the best paid. So he was making a decent living. I mean, it's not, you know, um, to working on these comic books that it was a, it was a respectable in terms of payment anyway. Um, he was able to live modestly or well, uh, from what he was making. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly um exactly uh you know today's dollars what what he would be making i got the idea that mexican comic book artists were probably like every other comic book artist in the world underpaid yeah sure sure um so was he surprised that somebody had gone to the trouble of not only you know diving deep into um his work but wanted to celebrate it in a book yeah, I think he. I think he was. Uh, he's pleased. Uh-huh. Um, you know, who wouldn't be like, oh, hey, I'm going to do a book about you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's about time. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just it's terrific. Um, so you know, there are a couple things that are popping in my head at once, and one of them is is that your whole project um, from work from Pinko Joe, Greeny Josefini fundamental camarena uh it's all about in in a, in a way resurrecting this work that's been lost somehow it's it's you know yeah you take it in pinko joe and you transform it and it becomes something new but at the same time you're also you know when you've got the artist's name you're you're putting it out there you're saying this is where this material comes from you know a lot of it also you point to the fact that a lot of it was anonymous which points is a big issue in and of itself and points to the way that that industry was structured. But you're also, you're just bringing this stuff back to light because otherwise it's lost. It's forgotten. And so they're, they're, they come hand in hand in a way. It's, um, it's a very celebratory kind of process as much as, you know, from the outside. And when we first engage your work, it doesn't seem to be that that's what it's about, but underneath it all is the celebration of comic art. Well, I think that um, as artists, none of us want to be forgotten. I'm just basically, you know, I'm performing these good deeds in hopes that when I die and and forgotten, somebody manages to resurrect me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, art is, a, a, I mean, I always, it's cliche, but art is a kind of conversation, right? It's a conversation of the present and the past with you know an imagined future you know and so you're in dialogue with these guys and that dialogue is something you're contributing to you know the future and and to somebody else who's going to come along and say hey you know i didn't know about camarena this is really cool stuff and i didn't know about um you know christopher sparandio and and um this is all together it's really kind of it, it opened up a door for somebody else you know to make comics in a different way uh that might be inspired by what you're doing but i think you know underneath it is this is this thread you know there's also another idea 
that that comes to mind and that that seems to be you're less interested in the idea perhaps of um well it's not entirely true i mean both greenie josephini and pinko joe are narrative and they they tell a story and but it's distinct from the typical narrative we we encounter in a graphic novel if if there's a there's a difference there and it seems to me the the idea of art project art object is more prevalent maybe than the idea of story yeah i i i agree i think that that's um that's the, certainly the case in it's not normal <laughs> that's the best way it's not normal <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> and i don't know if it's abnormal in a cool way or in a boring way <laughs> in a lot of ways you and i went through a similar kind of um transition if you will uh you know i grew up wanting to make comics and drawing comics all the time and all my heroes were mainstream comic artists same kind of environment no museum no galleries it, the only art i had to look at was comic books so that was my education as a kid went to art school you know and that was kind of in the mid 70s late 70s that was kind of beaten out of me at art school you don't yeah. want to you know comics cartoon bad no good look at this other stuff and yeah. so i turned away from that because it was being sort of hammered into me and i went another direction and you know went to grad school did the you know, studied painting in grad school and art history in grad school and came out and that was the gallery world was the trajectory i was headed for and that was what i was in my quote-unquote maturity um that was what i had been had schooled myself in you know and i'd kind of lost touch with comics but when i came back to comics which was almost immediately the day i left grad school uh, and it, I'd, <laughs> and I, i'd been flirting with it you know on and off the whole period i was in grad school because i had access to comics like i never i was in brooklyn i had access to comics like i hadn't had in a long long time um you know i in the places i was living before comic shops were far away and they were not in my path to my job or whatever along the way and so it wasn't part of my life but after, as soon as i got out of grad school you know i dove deep you know and started self-publishing and all that kind of stuff and the impetus really more than any other came from the tradition that you and i both been schooled in and that is the studio art fine art tradition and that gallery system and the whole history of that and um and so i came at it initially from this idea not of telling a story but rather from the idea of well you know images connecting to other images in sequence can create meaning in a way that may not necessarily be narrative but accumulative and in that accumulation you know out of that you can comes some sense of significance some something unique and different uh you know i like that actually i'm going to write that down <laughs> no i'm serious <laughs> That's uh, that's a great way to think about it. Accumulation as opposed to just yeah, material. And, and so that's what I, and it's still something that I'm deeply interested in and believe in as a, a method of working in comics that is ignored too often. Because, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this in your own uh, environment, academic environment. More often than not these days, it's english departments that are interested in comics they're interested in the narrative they're interested in the story and gra the idea of the graphic novel art departments you know have this kind of um 
oftentimes this kind of uh, they keep a little bit of a distance. Uh, for example, when the Billy Ireland Museum opened in what was it, 2013, there's a big celebration. And I, I was lucky. I was chair of my art department at the time. I got to go to it. And wow. just, it was a great event to be in. But there was nobody from the art department at this opening. And it's at Ohio State. But there were people from the English department there. And, you know, there was uh, I didn't encounter any other people from studio art departments um, there, but I did encounter academics from English departments across, you know, the way. And it struck me that, wow, you know, it's it, this emphasis on narrative is is really sort of eclipsed the idea that comics can also work primarily primarily visually in a way to convey meaning in the way that maybe painting does or the way that printmaking does or the way Max Ernst does or other books like that, you know, where the images carry the weight and they don't have to be linear. They can work in a different way. And that, that whole idea, which I think would be natural for somebody coming from where we're coming from originally, is kind of lost. And particularly like in mainstream comics, you know, the emphasis is all on writing these days those are the guys driving the the comics in dc and marvel comics and the artists are hired as illustrators and i don't mean to demean illustration i think it's great fantastic but a lot of people have these incredible skills but you know this whole other this emphasis is sort of we've lost this other thing a little bit maybe we can find a way to work in a way with comics that's different and and not so linguistically oriented if you will um well so, i started the comic art teaching and study workshop at rice basically in the as a kind of uh uh in the mode of the billy ireland uh-huh um and um and it's it is an oddball thing because it's it's a comic centric uh teaching and research space within an on a fine art department rather than English department. That's terrific. And, um, and, and I, luckily I've had the support of my colleagues in this, my immediate colleagues that, you know, in the department uh, are all, um, maybe they're not comic book fans, but they, they love, may, some of them are, uh-huh. uh, but uh, just fans of inky drawing in general. Uh-huh. Yeah, which, uh, which you know, who I think if you're not a fan of inky drawing, then then you don't have a heart, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. It speaks to the soul. Yeah, you know. Um, but, but, but that's it's interesting. Great. You know, the the right the rise of the writer in the corporate comic book. It's because these corporate executives get trained. They 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 study English and they take writing you know, some kind of writing class in college, uh, but they're not taking drawing classes in college. Yeah. Right. So, so, so the, the corporate masters can understand when a writer writes something that they can't understand necessarily when a, when an artist draws something. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, th- I think too, you know, the process of making images for so many, um, you, people who are, as you say, business people or elsewhere, who it's a mystery, you know, yeah. um, you know, how can you conjure these things up out of whole cloth? It frightens, it's frightening. We can't, yeah, control. it frightens them. 
yeah, you know, we can't control it. And because we can't control it, you're not going to, we're not letting, you know, you guys in charge, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now you sound like the president of my university. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great. That's future. okay. He's on his way out. So I can, I can, uh, and I imagine he doesn't care what I say anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think well, that, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, that the drawing, drawing there's still a, a witchy alchemy to being a drawing person yeah that uh i hope i hope doesn't disappear absolutely i, I totally agree on the one hand if we're magicians you know and, and i think one of the things as a kid this is one of the things other kids gather around if you're the artist in the class you know and they come and they watch you draw and all the kids are like wow you know that's really how do you do that kind of stuff there's a magic about it there's an aura about it that is magic and mystical and you know and even you and i and other people who draw don't really know exactly what's going on between mind and hand you know i mean i've always been able to do this why i don't know you know and and that's something i don't necessarily want to know i mean i can i can do it better i can learn how to do this that and the other thing but where this vision in the head how that gets into the hand and onto the page i don't know you know and well there that's something we're tapping into something there that is not necessarily obvious to the rest of the world and so yeah maybe it is a little scary um necromancy <laughs> yeah you i know. spend a lot of time with the dead i think i'm more of a necromancer than than uh you spend a wizard. lot of time in graveyards well i mean the dead Dead comic artist. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. With, uh, I'm communing with uh, uh, yes, Lynn you're... Streeter from Beyond the Grave. Yeah, and and bringing their work back one way or the other, you know, through That's right. through resurrecting them through my dark yeah. Uh, dark rituals. Yeah, exactly. There you go, uh, and <laughs> and and doing a fine job of it too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there's there's something about that. Anyway, I I think. Um, one of the things that I get from your book and I appreciate from your, from the books, um, is this quality, you know, is this object quality and this object, this idea of concept, um, that under, I want to say overrides, but it, it envelops the entire project, you know, and that makes it seem all that much more, um, substantive in that way. Uh, and, and because it's all brought together, your appreciation and your work on the art, um, helps, you know, as you say, with the alchemy, you know, uh, of it. And there's something, it transcends its source material, uh, in that way. And I, I think that's really, really terrific. You know, it's, it speaks to just the quality of the artwork and the quality of, of, you know, the artist and the artist's vision, uh, there. Well, I think layering, you know, the, I tried to layer, um, I worked, <clears throat> there was a time, uh, sort of in the late nineties, early two thousands where I was, uh, actually I was developing, trying to develop some of my books into animated shows. I had a development deal at MTV oh. and I actually, I learned a lot. Um, I, I did three, uh, I had three pilots with them. None of them made it out of the, made it uh, out, but, uh, it was uh, I learned a lot from 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 that experience and about, uh, you know, revising and trying to pack in more, you know, and the, and the goal with the animated 
cartoon, especially a comedy, was you want, uh, you know, you want laughs. You want people to laugh. And, you know, and so looking at the work and saying on each page, like, is there something here that somebody will laugh at? Yeah. And so I really tried to pack uh, Pinko Joe, uh, definitely with the starter, but Greeny Josephine, you know, really focused on on trying to make a laugh on every page. And I think you succeed in that in, in more so than you probably imagine. I mean, I literally laughed out loud throughout both books. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, some of the stuff was just great. Uh, and in ways that, like, for example, just the way you utilize language made me laugh. The rhythm of the words, you know, whether the dialogue itself, the, the, the dialogue itself has this quality that's not naturalistic. And its mannered quality just was over the top in such a way that just it it made me it brought guffaws, you know, <laughs> forward. I mean, I, I was I'm sitting there reading the book and my wife is doing something else and I'm just laughing away. And I can't quite convey the joke to her because you gotta get into the book. You know, it's not like jokes. It's it's because there's a whole rhythm of reading and the lines are funny as you're reading within the story, but I can't take them out of the context and say them to my wife and think she's going to laugh because it's not how it works. It's, it works in a different, in a different way. Uh, but I think that it's very successful because again, I find it really, really funny. And, and I don't always laugh at comics that are supposed to be funny. Yeah. Uh, in this case, not only are they, they really smart, but they're really entertaining in that sense. And so it's interesting to to note that that was also a goal, you know, of yours is trying to to make to entertain, to make people laugh. Yeah, I think laugh and then cry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. because <laughs> in that oh order, my God. the the system. Oh my God, and and the exploitation and the oppression that has existed and exists, but at the same time. Uh, such a great concept and uh, such a great story. It, you can't help but be swept away by it as well. You know, the idea of this guy who's found himself kind of through some kind of Twilight Zone episode in this uh, other world where where capitalism is portrayed as the evil and socialism is the accepted norm. Uh, it's kind of a great situation. It's the upside down. The upside down. <laughs> it's a bizarro world. You know, that is a bizarre world. I wonder if there is a bizarro comic where this happens. You know, uh, a Superman comic where suddenly, you know, socialism is revered and, and capitalism is uh, is reviled. You know, that's kind of an interesting question. That would be a great bizarro comic. You well, know, it's the kind of- Red Sun, right? Did you did you read the Red Sun? They actually did an animated movie. Um, I don't know if you have HBO. Yeah, I do. Uh, uh, if you go through their DC section, they did a, okay. uh, um, an animated film version of this uh, where instead of landing in Kansas, uh, uh, Kal-El lands in Moscow. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay. Oh, fascinating. And, yeah. Uh, it, and, uh, of course – one should read a comic book, but I, I like, I'm a fan of animated uh, stuff too. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. Oh yeah, me too. Happy, happy to watch it, sit down and watch a cartoon. 
Oh yeah. Uh, and lie to myself and say it's you know it's professional reasons. <laughs> I do the same. Yeah, my wife she watches me watch cartoons, and you know she's you know what what kind of job is this where you watch cartoons all day? You know, <laughs> sometimes I'll pick something out, you know, of the DVDs or or some video, and I'll put it on that I want to watch. Like I was watching um, uh, Getty Tartavsky's um, a Primal. Uh, I don't know if you. Oh seen yeah, it. I love that. Uh, my God. So- what- tremendous tremendous stuff you know and she's like looking at, at me and i suppose you're gonna say this is for work you know <laughs> it is but well, you know um, it, uh, she doesn't buy it but anyway but that's a great yeah that's a great piece of work but yeah i'm a big fan of animated stuff too it's all you know part and parcel of the same thing although i don't know about you again i really prefer animation where i'm actually seeing the inky drawing you know, as opposed to the the uh, CGI stuff. Oh, I'll watch anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I was raised by Bugs Bunny, so that's yeah. that's ultimately you know the um, what's opera doc is uh, oh. is kind of my uh, uh, default sort of yeah. mental condition. Yeah. And I'd say that uh, that you know vintage Warner Brothers uh, informed. Uh, Pinko Joe as much as anything else did. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I definitely get that throughout the book. Um, that that kind of sense of humor. The same thing, I would also say, um, I don't think I'd be too far off the mark to say Jay Ward and Bullwinkle. Yeah, you know, I I um, I love Jay Ward. Uh, I have a uh, uh, I have a few comic book cartoon trophies and a, a framed uh, animation cell from a Captain Crunch commercial that Jay oh, one of my trophies. That's terrific. I have a box of Captain Crunch right in the closet over there, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, I loved it. all of that stuff by Jay Ward. Um, you know, is and uh, is just great. You know, it's the the humor from Captain Crunch all the way through Quisp and Qu- uh, and Quake and um, uh, was it George of the Jungle and you know, all that stuff they did was great. They were a great studio. Yeah. yeah. The Bullwinkle animation cells, you know, the, the company bulldozed them. And so the, oh, I didn't if know you want to, if you want a J Ward animation cell, you're better off trying to find a, a Captain Crunch commercial. What do you uh, know about that? I didn't know that. Yeah. And they used to have a, they used to have a, a Bullwinkle gift shop in LA. It was uh-huh. a, a converted gas station. And uh, his wife did the voice of Natasha, and she also ran ran the cash register. And so, chances are, if you went into the Bullwinkle gift shop, you would get this Natasha voice saying, "You know, that'll be I can't do voices. That'll be five dollars, please." Did you? Did you, know, you ever, oh my gosh! Did you ever? Were you able to to go to that? No, shop? I I I never I never went, but uh, I loved the. Uh, the you know, Jay Ward, he wanted to be Walt Disney, but he couldn't be. And, you know, so giant, a giant statue of Bullwinkle was about as close as he could get to building a, you know, a kind of Bullwinkle world. Yeah. You know, converted gas station is the best he could do for like. Uh, <laughs> well, thank goodness he wasn't Walt Disney. That's all, you know, I can say. Right. You know, I'm yeah. glad he was who he was. Yeah, I don't know that he felt appreciated in this time, but uh, I appreciate him. 
Yeah. And uh, that leads me to the other, I'm just looking at the, the other trophy on my wall. I have a um, Siegel and Schuster drawing. Are you kidding me? Oh, wow. So again, this is the, this is the um, sort of adjacency. It's a page from Funny Man. Funny Man. I don't know that one. So about 10 years after getting conned out of the rights to Superman. Yeah. Siegel and Schuster set up their own studio. Right. And they were trying to develop a property that would rival Superman. They thought, well, we'll just reinvent the wheel. And so they made a character called Funny Man, who kind of looked like Danny Kaye. And he was a clown who fought crime. Um, <laughs> and it just didn't work for whatever reason. And it failed after six issues. Uh, and so I have a page from Funny Man number two. And by this time, um, you know, the, um, I always get Siegel and Schuster confused. Yeah, Schuster was the artist, yeah. Schuster was the artist. So Schuster's already losing his vision. Yeah. And so they've hired people to do some of the work. But in order to retain copyright, he has to work on them, too. Mm-hmm. And so this page I have uh, would have had Schuster's hand in it somewhat, but it was probably yeah. drawn by somebody else for the most part. Might have been Wayne Boring or Al Plastino. Yeah, it's it's got a kind of Wayne Boring look to it. Uh, yeah. Um, but but I, it also looks like early Superman. Looks like yeah. Schuster. Yeah. Uh, and so I love that I love, early stuff. Yeah, and, and it wasn't, uh, you know, in the big scheme of things, it wasn't expensive, you know, and why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you, if you were interested in Superman, why wouldn't you be interested in, this is how collectors, I think comic collectors mis, misunderstand. Yeah. Right, they're collecting these trophies, and what they should really be doing is, you know, just salvaging the past. Yeah, I think I think you got a point there. You know, you can, as you were pointing out earlier, you can pick up some original artwork uh, and quality stuff. You know, by perhaps artists or illustrators who are maybe less well known or projects that are less well known, but that are every bit as beautiful as some of the stuff that's going for so much money. And and in doing so, you are you know preserving this work from the past and certainly somebody like joe schuster obviously anything he's put his hand to is it, it, you know has historical significance in the sense that you know this is one of the two guys who invented the success of the mainstream comic book um you know yeah it's like way. it's like i don't want that uh holy grail because jesus didn't drink out of it on that day i yeah. want the, i want the other holy grail uh-huh. Which he's drank out of on this, on this particular. Yeah. You know, this is still this was in the hands of somebody who uh, was very important, and also like the the pathos of the story of you know you know don't forget that that people are going to try and uh, screw you. Yeah. <laughs> people are going to yeah. try and take from you. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna talk you out of your money one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great enterprise. And um, it's one I'm always scouring eBay and the heritage auction sites for stuff that is of interest. And I I always back away from it because I can never come up with the it seems like when when push comes to shove, I never come up with the money, you know, at the the right time. But uh, one of these days, one of these days. Well, so there's there's a lot, though, that you can get. 
like um, again, like at the bottom of the market. So one of the places I look is I look at French and Italian dealers. Okay. And I look at French and Italian comics from the sixties and seventies. Uh huh. Um, and you know, you can get some really, really interesting stuff. So for instance, one of the things that, that, um, so one of the things that interests me is the, how comics were exported to different countries and then translated into those different languages. So uh-huh. Marvel, so Marvel translated into French in the seventies. How did that look and what was happening? And what they would do is they would take photostats of the American comics, mm-hmm. the line art. And because the French language occupies about twice the space that English language occupies, they have to do these massive sort of deconstructions of the pages so that they can fit the French dialogue into the, into the American comics. So they would take stats and they would cut them apart. They would, you know, sort of uh, Frankenstein everything together with the dialogue. And then, but then you'd have these, you'd have these big white gaps, right? Where, and they would fill that in with, they would hire some local artist to come in and, and, and fill it in. Oh my and, God. And not very well. Right. You know, just good enough that you didn't notice it at first. But if you looked at it long enough, you'd go, huh. What, What's what, happening? <laughs> what happened? Crazy. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, and these, you can get these pages like this for a few dollars. Huh. I mean, because it's fascinating. nobody wants them. Right. Nobody right. wants them yet. They're utterly fascinating. I've got two. I'm actually looking at two right now. One is of a war scene with a tank, and another is a sci-fi scene. Uh huh. Um, and uh, and they're great teaching tools. Sure. To sort of, you know, just look at if you're interested in comics. And and yet they these still have a charge, right? I mean, these were published in yeah. France. They weren't published in the U.S. These were published in France. Published comics. It's pretty cool. It's like a different, yeah. you know, I mean, we'd be surprised. I'm sure I would be surprised. I have a colleague uh, at, at the university I teach at, at Adelphi, who's also uh, very interested in comics published elsewhere, uh, Marvel and DC comics published elsewhere. Um, and he's done some some interesting prints with them. Um, his name's Christopher Saucedo. And uh, mm-hmm. so the comics language is something that he doesn't use it terribly often it was really just one series of works but he he continues to collect comics published in italy you know marvel and dc comics published elsewhere in spain uh in elsewhere in europe in mexico um wherever he can find them because for the same reason he's fascinated by the variations and the kind of um reconstructions uh of the material yeah the craziest for me is the British comics. The British comics, they would actually, um, because the aspect ratio of the American comics was different from the aspect ratio of what they wanted to publish in the UK, they would actually take the stats like Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four and they would collage them so that they would fit the aspect ratio of the page. So that they would cut, cut the originals up and then collage them together that they would fit better in the UK wow. format. That's just completely changing it. 
Well, I, I imagine that you, you are you talking about like not just taking the panels and pushing them apart so that they fill up a wider space, but also literally transforming the images. Yeah, there would have to be some filling in, of yeah. course. Yeah. And then they were printed in black and green. <laughs> okay. It doesn't okay. For the Hulk, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. But you know, for everything so, else. Uh yeah, I mean it's it's the UK comics, uh the the printing of of um American comics in the UK in the sixties and seventies is is crazy. And yeah. and fascinating. I don't know. I don't think it changes the course of human events to go and look at those <laughs> things. But I can't look away. Like I, I just want to see. I just want to. I just want to see all of that because, you know, the the sheer disregard or the brazenness yeah. of taking the Jack Kirby page and then basically, um, uh, you know, collaging like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just it just points to the idea of the industry and how little respect and little regard they had for yeah. people who were making the work, and um, and and that's pervaded throughout, you know, the the majority of the history of the industrialized medium. Um, that that disregard for somebody like Jack Kirby till he was gone, um, they felt like they could walk all over him. And uh, and obviously, you know, you go back to we all know the story of the um, the Al Plastino heads of Superman, you know, superimposed yeah. on Jimmy Olsen stories by Kirby. And and I always found that astounding. But, you know, I I found that that attitude among editorial seems to per, to be everywhere in regard to the artwork. They just don't particularly assign any great value to it. I mean, this is the engine by which this all runs. You know, comics is a visual medium. And yet the people in the editor's office often, more often than not through the history of comics, had little regard for the material that was there in their, I mean, their hands, like destroying all those pages of original artwork at Marvel back in the day or elsewhere, you know. Uh, or hiding, hiding Jack Kirby's drawings from it. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Basically, just stealing his drawings, and not, and then taking him to court, or he had to take them to court uh, in order to get the work back, or to get some kind of uh, settlement, so that he could have some of his work, if not all of it. And then well, the great injustice of it all is, of course, all this stuff starts selling on eBay and elsewhere for thousands of dollars and none of the artists who made the stuff ever get it ever got any of that yeah. you know um yeah, you know that's for think, sure you know so it, there's a lot of of that disregard i think for for those who produce the artwork and the original artist and but what you're doing i think is as i said before is a, a way of resuscitating is bringing back to light uh this work from the past that's been lost and forgotten but whether it's through transforming it on Instagram or in Greeny Josephini or Pinko Joe um, and through books like Camarena and um, the fundamental Camarena. And, and I, I hope that you continue doing all of those things, both, you know, uh, the, the work that you've done with Pinko Joe. I hope there's a hundred issues of this stuff, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I'm going to be one more. Nobody yeah. gives a shit. 
<laughs> oh, come on, man. I think this stuff is great. And, uh, you know, and if, if the word gets out Tell there, I'd love friends. to see you know, I'd love to see the stuff in comic shops. I'd love to see it elsewhere. You know, I think it, it's it's great stuff and it should be shared and people should see it because it's, you know, these two books are among my favorites that I've purchased this entire year. And I bought a lot of stuff this year um, for the show and for other things, you know, and but I bought these just out of enjoyment and, and interest in the process that you were using. Um, and they're they're wonderful books they're wonderful art books they're wonderful art objects and i hope people will take the time to explore and and seek them out and pick them up because they're they're wonderful and i hope also that you know you'll continue to find uh artists like camarena and bring them to light through similar kind of monographs that would be so great you know Uh, because i certainly had no idea uh, about mexican comics or about uh his work so yeah you know, it's great yeah. stuff. So yeah, what's, thanks. you know, after the trilogy's done, do you see yourself continuing working, continuing to work in this vein, or you just haven't really, you're just not projecting that far in the future? Well, I've, one thing I've been doing uh, sort of all, all along is, you know, these bigger books take a long time to, you know, produce and come out. And yeah. um, uh, the Instagram thing is, you know, fun and, uh, but I can, you know, I do that in about 20 minutes, you know, like uh-huh. it's not, it's not a big part of my day to do the, to, to make something put on Instagram. So I've been making these mini comics. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, I did a, uh, a, a young Pinko Joe mini comic, <laughs> which is yeah. volume four, uh-huh. but there is no volume one two or three like i just made a a, like a a middle of the story young pinko joe comic for no reason nobody nobody cares (laughs) is Uh, that person woman man camera monster is that what what no so that's that's uh that's another um uh pinko joe sort of standalone mini comic yeah that one is um uh I made it. I got so mad. I was so mad after the the uh, attempted coup yes. on January sixth. Yeah. That I made a I made a comic book the next day. No, that's great. <laughs> and um, and it's just twenty four pages, and uh, it's a uh, it's just you know more Pinko Joe nonsense, but in a um, I I included a uh, board game. In the comic, it's the race to save democracy. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know stuff like uh, bushwhacked by seditionists, lose two turns. Yeah, I love it. Sabotage by dark money, lose a turn. <laughs> um, and so these mini comics, uh, I I like making the mini comics, and they're much quicker to make, and they're cheaper, and um, you know I. Whenever I interact with anybody or whenever I interact with artists in particular, I like to give them something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, these mini comics are a great way to sort of um, exchange things with people. Yeah. Um, And so I don't know what the next big, after I finish this trilogy, um, I don't know what 
what I'll make. The uh, what I've been doing. So Pinko Joe came out at the same time as Fundamental Camarena, and then with Greeny Josephini, I also produced the comics making book, which is uh, you know kind of uh, combination of uh, of sort of tutorials and and um, the other activity that I've been doing at Rice. And uh, next year, a friend of mine. So next year, I'll I'll produce the the uh, red, white, and you blew it all to hell. And I'll I'm I want to publish a book. Um, it's comics made by a friend of mine when he was uh, ten years old. Oh, okay. His parents were really strict, and they wouldn't let him go see the movies that he wanted to see, like um, American Werewolf in London mm-hmm. or um, Star Wars. They're really strict, and so he made his own versions of those movies as comics based on hearsay. Oh, that's interesting. And he, you know, he would scour like uh, movie magazines and newspaper articles and whatever he could get his hands on visually. Uh, but the story, like his friends would go see the movie and then tell him the story of what happened. And then he would turn that into a comic. Oh, that's fascinating. That could be really interesting. Uh, yeah. And they're, they're great. Uh-huh. Uh, and they make, they're amazing. And he, his uh, father would bring home computer paper and so they're drawn on these green and white uh, dot matrix computer pages. Oh, wow. Yeah, from way back in the day. <laughs> way back in the day. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, are these both going to be published by Argle Bargle Books? Yeah, I imagine so. I think um, uh, uh, Stan Waney, who's the, the publisher, is an artist in his own right. He's got a book coming out with Conundrum Press in uh, September, I think it uh-huh. is. Uh, maybe st- I think um, people are catching wise that Stan Waney's a great artist, and so I think I don't know how much longer he's going to be a publisher. Uh-huh. He's going to be too in demand as a as an artist. Oh, that's great. So we'll see. You know, yeah. if not Argo Bargle, then uh, then I I don't, I don't know. Um, I think the property is too hot for a mainstream publisher. I think they're afraid of the public domain aspect of the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I have to say I, I've done a lot of collage stuff myself and people I approached have always said, um, you know, Jesus is interesting, but, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of issues. And, um, yeah. of course, you know, who knows if that's true or not i mean uh i went through one thing where i was doing an homage to the old famous monsters magazines it's one of the things that i've I've sent you and Mm. it was an homage to the old famous monsters thing so it used that logo and now we're talking about a print run of like you know a thousand right so we're not talking about mega stuff but i ended up getting in trouble and getting a phone call from guy of all people lawyer in california who represented dick cheney of all people you know, telling me he was going to take my house and my clothes and my you know, my car uh, because of trademark infringement or no, he called it copyright infringement. And in fact, so what happened was I got clued into a lawyer who works for comics artists sometimes and periodically does pro bono work. And it's been a long time now, so, so I don't remember his name. But um, he he said, look, this is just BS. They're just trying to shake you down. 
So, you know, because at the, I was at the point where I was going to say, look, I'll burn everything and I'll give you all of the original artwork and all of this stuff. You can have it if you just leave me in my house alone. <laughs> and uh, I was about ready to do that. I was like sitting at the computer ready to send the email. I got an email from a friend who who knew this lawyer. The lawyer wrote me, said, stop, don't do anything. This is just BS. They, they do this all the time. They're trying to shake you down. It's a copyright issue. It's not a trademark issue. There's really nothing here of any value. I'll, uh, let me write a letter. So he wrote a letter, and the upshot of the letter was all I had to do was put a sticker over the logo, and I'd be fine. So, okay, I did that um for the length of time uh not that anybody you know we're talking about a thousand books that were never seen by anybody so anyway uh it was a scary moment though i gotta say and um and anytime i've ever talked to anybody about the books elsewhere yeah they they bring up this idea of copyright uh and and when you're talking about you know now we have corporations the, and this is a whole nother show <laughs> corporations who own property that well into, you know, uh, what is it? A century and a quarter or something. Uh, and it'll probably be lengthened the next time Mickey Mouse is up for public domain, which is any year now, uh, you know, they'll renegotiate it so that nobody else can play around. You know, Dan O'Neill still can't play around with Mickey Mouse uh, for another hundred years, you know, um, without losing his shirt and his life and whatever else they took from him. Uh, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. that's, that's the thing, you know, um, parody or not screw with Disney at your peril. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's for sure. And you know, the, the, uh, um, the sort of, you know, anybody can sue anybody for anything. This is America. Like that's our, you know, that's, <laughs> there you that's go. what being American is all about. Um, and so the idea that, you know, that somehow Pinko Joe and Green Josephini are some sort of copyright violation. Uh, just, you know, read a few pages. Yeah, yeah I know. You know, like the, it is it is not that. No, and it's absolutely not that. And we're talking about, as you said, public domain work that's been lost and forgotten about. And then nobody'd remember unless you picked it up and brought it to the attention of, of everybody. And for that, I think you should be applauded as well as for the 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 concept behind the work and the the execution it's all terrific great stuff man great stuff and uh i am going to reread them with great pleasure so <laughs> so you're uh, you're my one true fan thank you very much. <laughs> i hope that's not true but anyway uh so chris it's been great having you on the show and um yeah. love talking about this stuff and uh Hope we get to meet someday somewhere. Yeah, uh, absolutely, Jeff. And let's, you know, let's not wait till the next podcast to to, to talk, talk comics. Happy to yep. happy to do it anytime. Yeah, me too. Me too, man. It's been great. Really great. Yeah. All right. Thanks take again. care. Yep. Thanks for okay. being here. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah. Okay. And it's uh, argleborglebooks.com. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, let's make sure folks know that argleborglebooks.com. You can pick up uh, not only your work, Pinko Joe, Greenie Josephini, uh, Fundamental Camarena, and I think Comics Making, all of which are available there at Argo Bargo. Uh, and you can also get work by other artists as well. Um, for example, uh, you said the publisher's name again was Stanley. Stan Wayne. 
Stan Wayne. Okay, yeah. Stan Wayne. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, uh, and they just published a book by a, a tremendous uh, Australian artist named Jonathan McBurney. Wonderful. Um, Great. So uh, yeah, and I I think uh, I think uh, um, again somebody who comes at comics from a fine art perspective and really blends a love of 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 uh, comics with uh, just tremendous drawing. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. you know, and I've enjoyed looking over their site uh, and uh, found a lot of stuff and they respond immediately. So I got these books as soon as I placed the order. So you can't go wrong uh, with Argo, Argo books. So, okay. Say that three times. Ask for my name. Ask <laughs> for my name. Okay, yeah. Chris. Okay. Uh, great talking to you. Take care. And thanks great. for being here. Thanks. Thanks again. Wow. So so that'll do it for uh, today. I hope you got a lot out of that. Uh, really interesting conversation with Christopher Sprandio. And his Instagram, again, you know, just every day it brings something, some light to my <laughs> to my day. Helps me express my anger and vent my rage, if you will, and uh, as well as make me laugh. And I, I hope it will do the same for you. So at Pinko underscore Joe. And ArgleBargleBooks.com to pick up Pinko Joe, Greeny Josephini, uh, Fundamental Camarena, Comics Making, and so many other really great titles uh, at ArgleBargleBooks.com. Hey, if you're looking for an interesting Kickstarter to back, you might look for Dan Price's Bigfoot Nose Karate on Kickstarter beginning October 13th. This looks like a really fun and interesting project that reminds me a little bit of Getty Tartakovsky's Primal, if you will. It's something that brings that style to mind, and if that title doesn't get you, the lush artwork certainly will. I think you're going to love it, so check out Bigfoot Nose Karate on Kickstarter. As for me, jeffgrogan.com is my website. You can check out some of my old work there. Some of my comics are there to be read for your enjoyment and amusement. You may also find me on Instagram at greenscreencomic. Okay, that's where I'm posting most of my stuff these days. I'm right in the middle of Inktober, and I'm doing a whole thing with the Library of American Comics prompts and having a lot of fun doing that. You will find it amusing or diverting. I'm working on the second issue of Green Screen, which is actually the third, but let's not confuse matters. Uh, so I'm working on that, and hopefully that'll be out in the winter. So... Again, follow me on Instagram at Green Screen Comic. You can also help support this show and my other crazy endeavors at Patreon at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. <laughs> I did it. I spelled it correctly. Nothing much else to tell you about. Uh, I hope next time. Oh, gosh, next time we've got. This is great. I'm, I'm so, so looking forward to this. Dennis Kitchen is here. Dennis Kitchen will be here next time. I cannot wait for this discussion because there is a whole, I mean, my gosh, right? There's a, there's a whole museum full of stuff in Dennis Kitchen's life to talk about. Oh, my gosh, from, from you know, Mom's Homemade uh, comics in 1969 and Robert Crumb and and Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson and all those guys all the way up to to Don Simpson and then Mark Schultz and Will Eisner oh my God Will Eisner in the spirit and Dennis Kitchen <laughs> I mean my gosh there's a lot to talk about there it's like cartooning and publishing and everything and uh, some of the oh my gosh Dennis Kitchen's been involved with some of the greatest comics of you know ever. 
ever. So I cannot, I just can't wait. I can't wait. And I bet now you can't wait. So uh, let's, let's just hang in there. And in a couple of weeks, we'll have Dennis Kitchen here on the show. So uh, anyway, that'll do it for now. Okay. Again, on Instagram at green screen comic, find me there and, uh, or find me nowhere. And I'll be talking to you soon. So once again, I hope you are healthy. I hope you're well. I hope that, uh, you're enjoying the fall. Great pumpkin. Charlie Brown is back on TV. It's on PBS, I believe. Uh, so look for it soon and, uh, enjoy the fall season, get some pumpkins, carve a pumpkin and, and make some apple pie, <laughs> drink some cider, have some donuts. I know that's what I'm going to be doing. And, uh, I'll talk to you soon, okay? So once again, be safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.